But even if we are talking about the AA blockade, I think we would see efforts from China to become more self-sufficient. But becoming more self-sufficient from the rest of the world, it, it takes time. It all just starts with flow of trade in the region. I think the South China Sea has something like five trillion dollars of trade passing. I think it's actually closer to five and a half trillion dollars of trade passing through it. So that's all going somewhere. And you know, there's five and a half trillion things to think about there in terms of impact. Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent podcast focused on geopolitical risk, so decision makers in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance and beyond. I'm your host David Benyon and our topic for this episode is the risk of crisis between China and Taiwan. Tensions have risen in the past year and remain high with near constant speculation that President Xi could turn to a military solution to fulfill Beijing's decades-old one-China policy and cross the Taiwan Strait by force in order to reunify the breakaway island province, which has been separately ruled since China's civil war ended with communist victory in 1949. At the start of 2023, Lloyds asked its syndicates to complete an RDS-style data collection exercise into the market exposure to a Taiwan crisis. The report prepared for that exercise by CHC Global contained three scenarios, ranging from the seizure of Taiwan's outlying islands to an all-out conflict to unite the island with the mainland by force of arms. But it's the third scenario, dubbed quarantine, that was perhaps the most interesting and has generated most debate since then, focused on the use of grey zone or hybrid warfare tactics, combining a maritime blockade plus air, space and cyberspace, designed to squeeze Taiwan's economy and coerce its governments into capitulating to accept communist rule. We focus on it in this episode. The results of that Lloyd's exercise were not published outside the market, but we know that the exposures involved for insurers and for the global economy would be significant. Research organisation the Rhodium Group has estimated that any form of attack or blockade to Taiwan would impact $2 trillion of economic activity before taking into account sanctions or secondary impacts. So the topic of a Taiwan crisis remains a live wire keeps journalists like me, diplomats and analysts, consistently busy and on edge. Taiwanese elections in January 2024 could be the next diplomatic flashpoint, representing just the sort of provocation to Beijing that has previously led to sabre-rattling, such as the People's Liberation Army, Navy and Air Force exercising in the Taiwan Strait. I'm excited to say that there are two wonderful guests on this episode, offering very different perspectives and insights. We have Mark Wheeler, the co-CEO of Mosaic Insurance, featuring on this episode. Secondly, there's Dr. Zeno Leone, lecturer in the Defence Studies Department of King's College London and an affiliate of the Lao China Institute. In April, Zeno published a book titled Grand Strategy and the Rise of China, which got us talking online this summer and ultimately led to this podcast recording. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mark and with Zeno, which begins with some discussion of his new book. Well, firstly, Zeno, congratulations on your new book. What's the kind of mission statement behind it? And how does it relate to China-Taiwan tensions in particular? My book has a very important underlining theme that runs through every chapter of it, and is the fact that we cannot study the rise of China in isolation without looking at 
the, its relationship with the West over the last 150 years, because we would be telling really only half of the story. And the West has been absolutely crucial to the rise of China, to allowing the rise of China and nowadays to challenging uh, the rise of China. And this is very closely related to Taiwan because Taiwan represents one of those places where China and the West for many years, somehow they have met. And it is the symbol of a pragmatism, a compromise that now has lasted for about five decades since Nixon and Mao uh, met in 1972. But as we know, this pragmatism currently is being questioned. And so, hence why we are here talking about Taiwan. The other important theme, I think, or argument that relates my book to Taiwan is the fact that China is an unaccomplished power. China, in many ways, is a great power, but in many other ways is also a weak power or a developing country, for example. That has implications about to what extent can China be assertive towards Taiwan, retake Taiwan, and when this will happen. So these two points are important for us to get some perspective into the relationship between China and Taiwan. So I thought your book was absolutely fascinating. Zina. Thank you. I really enjoyed reading it. And, and I'm, I'm on my second read through at the moment. But I, I think one important thing that I would add is, as, as somebody who's reading it, is it's great for setting the scene, how China and the West, I guess, in particularly the US, react together. I think from my perspective in particular, the the notion of navigating ambiguity in the future you know, is brought out very well in the book and the different scenarios. And, and underwriting and risk selection is all about good judgment. So having access to the book has been a real advantage. And I would ask that you make sure none of my competitors get hold of a copy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, I will do. It's worth saying that we first started having talks about talks in terms of having this conversation in the summertime. We've seen so many tensions and different kind of indicators of the strained relationship between China-Taiwan, China-US, China and the West in that period. But, for example, incursions into Taiwan's EEZ. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, whether you think some of these are more useful than others as indicators of, of tension? Certainly, China has become more assertive and scholars talk about the year of assertiveness between 2009 and 2010 within the first island chain, above all in the South China Sea. Certainly, there's been an increase in these incursions and assertiveness on and around Taiwan in very recent years. And we've also seen perhaps something concerning last year when Pelosi visited the island, I felt what we saw from China it was a bit of an overreaction to that visit, which ultimately didn't have any tangible implications because Taiwan has been receiving weapons from the US for decades, and this is much more important than the visit of Pelosi. So we see China becoming more assertive when it comes to Taiwan, and, and this partly reflects also domestic issues, domestic tensions. On the other hand, to be a bit provocative, perhaps, and and challenge the fact that we might be close to something something happening. I have the impression that since the war in Ukraine, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there have been a lot of parallels being drawn between the war in Ukraine and 
an eventual war or blockade in Taiwan. And I think this is not uh, an accurate assessment. And I always say that we should be careful not to put you know, different items in the same basket and to draw comparisons between how Russia behaves and how China behaves. This is something that we already saw back when there was George W. Bush talking about the, the rogue states. And so North Korea, Iran, Iraq, these are very different states with different issues, priorities. I think we shouldn't make that mistake. That said, we can clearly see more tensions compared to the, the last few years. And a lot of the media attention, I think, can be counterproductive. I know, Mark, certainly you've, you've said previous conversations that of your friends and business colleagues and peers, some of them are, are from China and you've got those relationships, you value them. And some of the media attention does seem misinformed or sensationalist or designed to, you know, I mean, use me as an example. I'm a journalist. I've been to China a couple of times. I've been to uh, Macau, I've been to Hong Kong, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert on China at all. But a lot of people who write the headlines are probably even less well-traveled than I am. <laughs> so yeah, it, does, it does strike me that some of the um, media attention is not helpful. Would you agree with that? That really does very much resonate with me. You know, th there's always a tension between economics and, and politics and, and what sells headlines. I think of China really as a competitive nation, challenging the liberal international order, which, which is a point Zine writes a lot about in the first half of his book. But the political and economic interests very much need to be balanced. And the hostile media attention and rhetoric is not good for either of those points, and certainly not good for business relationships. So China and US policies around it boil down to a forced cooperation and restrained competition at the moment is how I feel about the overall relationship. But when all is said and done, I think we need to temper this with an overarching economic interdependence or codependence, which is, I think, going to play an important role in everybody staying level-headed. So moving on to the next part, which is really the issue at hand, which is to talk about a blockade-type scenario. I think really we're talking about something a bit short of a blockade. If I return to that data collection exercise that Lloyds ran at the start of this year, that well initially is a report prepared for them by CHC Global. So there were three scenarios in that report, and this was the first of those scenarios, really, which was called quarantine in that report. It wasn't quite a full blockade, but it certainly had a lot of implications across lines of business, some of which Mosaic writes, so cyber and political risk. But I think that the, across a lot of lines that weren't covered in that report as well. So it does feel like a lot of the not just within that report specifically, but just the analysis you see by intelligence sources, by analysts in the market, some of the journalists too, a kind of maritime interdiction blockade scenario is seen as, as more likely perhaps than an all-out conflict. So that's, I think, why it makes sense to focus on it. How do you think that scenario could unfold in terms of the tactics, Zeno, and, and the resources that China could use? Yes. So first of all, as you just confirmed, we tend to talk more about a blockade. The reason being that uh, not because war is not possible. We have just had uh, recently, uh, we've seen in Ukraine and now in Israel, examples of how actually war is still very much possible, even in old fashioned kind of war. 
but with Taiwan it would be extremely difficult, partly because of its natural geography. It's difficult to organize a disembarkation point along the coast of Taiwan. There are few beaches available with a lot of troops. And then there is also the problem of the urban geography of Taiwan, where, well, it would be just almost impossible for these troops to safely navigate through the island. And that's why we're talking about a blockade. A blockade, it would unfold probably in the following way. And we can learn this from the Chinese military doctrine, which is always very telling about how the military of any country behave. China defines a blockade um, cutting Taiwan or any adversary economic and military relationship from uh, the outside world. That's what we're talking about. But they see blockade as a spectrum. So we could see a total blockade, but we could also see a more selective blockade. So for example, a blockade of certain parts of the island, northern and western parts of the island where references, reference it in uh, Lloyd's report, for example. It, that sounds or, a little bit like they're enforcing a strict sanctions regime. Putting well, sanctions on the island, saying you cannot import this, you cannot import that, and then trying to enforce it at sea. Yes, exactly. And they would enforce it at sea, mostly at sea with the People Liberation Army Navy. But we could also see a sort of blockade where um, there is just some screening happening to certain types of vessels maybe coming from certain countries or maybe carrying certain items. It wouldn't be just a naval effort. It would be mostly a naval effort, but it would also involve, for example, uh, it might involve a, a no-flight zone. And so China might call into action its uh, surface-to-air missiles in addition to its air force. But a blockade would also have an information domain because this is absolutely crucial nowadays. And actually, Chinese doctrine is moving towards an idea that warfare is dominated by information. In warfare, information is absolutely central. So in an event of a blockade, we could see uh, the Chinese cutting undersea cables in order to isolate the island also from a point of view of information. Mark, we know that Lloyds has asked syndicates about this scenario, and it's not just Lloyds, it's the market in general. But your view on the market in general, especially insurers taking this scenario seriously, is it seen as realistic? Is it something that especially insurers are putting much thought so, into? So, so, yeah, I think underwriters are taking the situation pretty seriously. Candidly, it's probably the not, not the most pressing issue that we're gathering data on at the moment. But there's always a risk when status quo is challenged, and, and we're certainly seeing that here now. So uh, I think it would be fair to say that there is a general understanding of the potential risk in the region, and perhaps more importantly, from a, a specialty lines perspective, the broader impact. Lloyd's have asked underwriters to collect data, and, and, and underwriters are reviewing I think three real exposures across on the first hand blockade of Taiwan through sanctions and small military incursions through to a full invasion at the other end of the scale. I do want to be really measured and say we're looking at scenarios all over the world, from Southeast Asia to the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, pretty much everywhere really, even you know, we've seen 
big strikes and riots in France recently, and, and obviously there's the situation of war in Ukraine at the moment. So risk is quite categorically elevated, and that is having an impact on our thoughts and how we gather information. But I, I don't want to exaggerate this particular situation. And I, I would just say, let's just say it's always prudent to assess exposures at any point in time. But this is a subject, you know, I know when we've spoken in the past that has been talked about in academic circles for decades. It's a subject with increased attention being paid to it. You know, capital markets, as opposed to insurance, are notoriously bad at guessing geopolitical risk and insurance. You know, it's sort of what we do for a living. You know, I think one of the considerations for the market is that the and I'm speaking now from a lens of a specialty insurer, not a general PNC underwriter. And the local Asian market is, in relative terms, and, and certainly relative to GDP, small. But there are much more important, wider global economic ramifications here. What is absolutely clear is this sort of scenario, for lack of a better description, would have a chilling impact on the global economy. And there's a correlation been demonstrated time after time between economic performance and, and loss activity in specialty market. And much has been written about the impact, supply chain ramifications, were there an incursion or invasion in Taiwan? So I, I don't really want to spend much time on that. But for Mosaic specifically, I think, what do I worry about most? I, primarily cyber, it's one of our biggest lines. And so, you know, in that sense, it's probably a disproportionate concern to me. But I think there's a real risk that cyber or digital loss could supplement, I, I choose the word supplement very carefully, kinetic activity. We obviously write political risk and business investment would be significantly impaired. I and mean, ultimately that could lead to expropriation, non-honouring of debt, confiscation, facets, that sort of thing. Uh, the FI market, I think, for us would be at the forefront of the economic disruption and the sorts of losses that stem from that in terms of solvency, uh, liquidity, non-performing assets. So that, that would be a real concern as well. Transactional liability reps and warranties for a very different reason. They're, they're essentially runoffs that cover exposure from the past. So I think for us, it would be more a question of the TL markets with transactional lines would completely dry up in the event of, of this sort of conflict. Question for Zeno then, really, if, if the Strait and the Taiwanese ports became inaccessible as part of a, a war risk area for a blockade scenario, how would you expect trade and commerce, and I think it's a question for both of you, really, capital flows to respond, to move in that scenario? Well, I think there are... Uh, three orders of implications to consider in the event of a blockade. First of all, I think we would uh, simply lose about half of Taiwanese GDP. So a blockade of Taiwan would cause immediately a loss of half a trillion or six, 600 billions or something along those lines. But that's just looking at the Taiwanese economy. But then looking at the semiconductors, as, I mean, you mentioned before, it's a kind of a spectrum as to what they would decide to restrict. So if they decide to restrict semiconductor exports, that's going to have a much bigger impact. Exactly. So even if they were going to restrict the semiconductor export, 
there are estimates suggesting that because there would be second order effects that would affect many companies and uh, businesses around the world. We're talking about probably one trillion and a half in terms of uh, economic cost. But then for me, the, the big deal probably is the third implication, which is what would happen to the Chinese economy if there is a blockade to Taiwan. It's very difficult to sanction China economically. The, the West would struggle very much. However, until recently, we thought it was unthinkable that the West, that Europe would sanction Russia, for example. At the end of the day, Europe decoupled from Russian gas, for example. So, okay, that doesn't mean that the West can do the same with China, but something will happen. I saw a news story just the other day. The Australians came out and said, we cannot decouple. It, it would be impossible. Exactly. But in the context of strategic competition between China and the US, some decoupling is likely. But even if decoupling doesn't happen, because you asked me about what investors and businesses would do, it's possible that the fear of a scenario similar to that of, of Russia might trigger movement of investments away from China. Now, the experience, another example we can draw from is when China imposed the national security law in Hong Kong, and then reports that came out from Xinjiang saying that China wasn't respecting uh, human rights. It didn't seem that those events caused much change among uh, business strategies when it comes to their investments in China. So we cannot answer this question yet, but perhaps the risk is that some businesses, in order not to be caught up looking at what happened already following the war in Ukraine, they might act prior to any government uh, decision. Um, this is something that, for example, I've seen in Canada, looking at the Huawei's 5G case study. Apparently, the telecommunication providers back then acted before restrictions were imposed by the Canadian government because they were looking at what was going on in, in other countries and they were looking at the debate. And so something will happen, even if there's no sanctions imposed on, on China, I'm sure. Mark, as a follow-on question from that for you, so Asian specialty markets are not huge. Is this something that you think would be a major concentration risk or put it another way, a wider contagion effect for, for London market firms? I think it can be both, but I'm more worried about the contagion effect. I think it, it's definitely a much wider contagion effect. There'll, there'll always be industry-focused areas. I think a great example, I don't want to draw parallels with Russia and Ukraine as an event, but when one contemplates the large aviation leasing contingency losses there, it serves as a good example of where you can have, I think, largely unexpected concentrations of scale. Most notably, the global disruption around semiconductor production and distribution would become a global supply chain area of concern. So that's a contagion risk then? I, I think so. I'm very clearly, because of the number of industries and the number of geographies that it would be impacted and the knock-on from that. See, this is terrifying because a, a concentration risk, I think, would be perhaps easier to quantify. Am I right? Whereas a contagion Absolutely. risk... Absolutely. Mean, that's why, I've, you know, for me, my greatest fear is contagion. If, if you're an underwriter, the greatest threat to your business from a performance perspective is sideways loss exposure rather than 
single big events which are easier to contemplate and so, therefore so we're getting we're getting beyond first and second order this is several moves ahead that it's it, almost impossible to, to game incredibly complicated uh, you, you know i think it, it all just starts with flow of trade in the region i think the south china sea has something like five trillion dollars of trade passing i think it's actually closer to five and a half trillion dollars of trade passing through it so that's all going somewhere you know there's five and a half trillion things to think about there in terms of impact. To try and keep things simple for a moment, possibly in vain for this scenario, but to look at some specific examples of claims activity you might expect to see. So, you know, in, in the lines that Mosaic writes, for example, like transactional liability, like political risk, like cyber business, could you just give an inkling of some examples of claims you could expect? Well, I'm not worried about it from transactional liability because I think the market just dries up in a way that we saw that happen again. I'm mentioning Russia, Ukraine, I'm sorry, um, but there are lessons learned from that. And there needs to be underlying deal activity to create demand for the product. So I, I literally think that market just withers immediately on the vine. And again, I'm speaking for Mosaic, not for the broader market, and we have very defined range of products, but my greatest concerns around cyber, and in particular, a material increase around business interruption losses following malicious activity. And also, I'd say probably the threat of condoned ransom and perhaps restoration costs. The political risks and non-honouring of debt and confiscation, expropriation, nationalisation and asset deprivation. That's quite a mouthful. I said C-E-N-D. I was trying to remember them. That's an obvious area as well, which would have knock-on more global contagion effects for Chinese assets in different parts of the world. But you know, I think we can summarise it all around an expected chain reaction in the global impact, which will come from rising prices, slower economic growth, financial market volatility, and the potential for asset shocks, all of which we've seen various permutations of over, uh, since COVID, really. And these have real potential to contribute to systemic loss, each of those. So again, I, you know, risk is incredibly elevated at the moment. If I just quote from that CAC Global report that came out earlier this year, that was the starting point for the exercise that Lloyd's conducted. So that report mentioned Chinese cyber activity disrupting logistics systems for major Taiwanese shipping companies intermittently over a one-month period following the imposition of the quarantine. A Chinese cyber attack directed against a Taiwanese semiconductor company, which would disrupt production for two weeks and cause a 40% drop in production in that period, which could not be attributed to a Chinese state group. And European, British or Australian banks being subject to ransomware attacks, causing operational disruption for, let's say, five days, I think it says, and um, this would be attributed to a North Korean group employing Chinese cyber tools. These are the kind of scenarios that they talk about. Are those useful, realistic? Yeah, I think they are very useful. And in part, I, I say that pretty confidently because they are all actually examples of circumstances that have happened in the past and have likely been occasioned by hostile action between sovereign nations. So malware often starts off as a state, not necessarily commissioned, but condoned 
activity and then spills over into the commercial world. So they're not fantasy land at all. I wouldn't consider them at the far end of the loss curve on cyber either. So I think very manageable by the market, but nevertheless real. I'm conscious we keep referring to Russia-Ukraine and we need to keep having that asterisk or caveat in mind that we don't want to just say that this is the same or draw parallels that shouldn't be drawn. But with that caveat, I'll say it again. So with, with Russia, Ukraine is a live example. Mark, how do you think the market might respond to this crisis as it would unfold and then continue in terms of the exclusions we'd see in the reinsurance market and also the need to serve existing clients and you know, where there will be appetite to write some business on a net basis? We've seen this in Ukraine, for example, Black Sea business. I think it's obvious that there will be a major impact on the coverage available. Don't forget, many global clients have Taiwan exposure as part of their overall risk base. So, you know, I don't see it leading to a situation where global policies are cancelled wholesale, but specific areas could be treated differently. I think that's very likely initially occasioned within the insurance market, but you can be absolutely certain that that will filter through to the reinsurance market quite quickly. You know, without being blunt, no insurer is going to give fire insurance for a house that's already on fire. It's pretty obvious, really. So I would say there would absolutely be a significant impact in terms of what's available in coverage for Taiwan. And there'll be people watching very closely in the insurance market for signs that exposure's ramping. Again, I don't want to really fuel the rhetoric. It's not front and centre in my mind at the moment. But obviously, we have to contemplate it. So where there is direct exposure, the reality is that net solutions will prevail by definition, because I think reinsurers will exclude. I think that's beyond debate, really. I think in many instances, policy holders and underwriters are going to be aligned. So there'll be a period of time where exposures are worked out. And I think we've seen evidence of that again in Russia with Western companies either closing operations, repatriating assets. That would be an obvious thing that we'd expect to see here as well. And I think it gets through to the human side as well. You know, we would absolutely want to repatriate any of our staff in Southeast Asia, obviously the expat members of our team. That, I think, is something that an obvious first step for us and also offer assistance to other local members of the team. So that, that would have an impact. I'm sure that would happen across the market. That would have an impact on coverage availability locally. So we're definitely in a period in which conflict feels more likely. And the killer question here that I think everyone really wants to ask is when. But as an extension to that also, if we're looking at when this might happen, you know, what are the useful signs that conflict might be imminent? How much do I get if I give you the right answer <laughs> to, this, to this question? So I think the official statement from Chinese policymakers is that they want to reintegrate Taiwan into uh, the People's Republic of China. And uh, they want to do this peacefully but they will not renounce the use of force if this is necessary. Personally, thinking about Chinese strategic culture, if we think about it from a rational point of view, China's strategic culture tells us that, you know, through Sun Tzu, 
through Marxism, they have a very cautious approach to strategy and to war. They wouldn't want to get involved in something that they cannot control militarily or politically or where they might lose. So there is a very pragmatic approach there. And I find this quite reassuring. Also because, answering the question about when, China is probably not ready, both economically and militarily, to embark on something of these dimensions. Because as we said, it won't be just about China and Taiwan, is what comes after all the other implications. So answering your question, this might be decades away, or it might even never happen on a rational point of view. I think we also need to consider irrationality. We have seen how nervous China was last year when Pelosi visited the island. And something else I think is good to consider is the fact that if China at some point realizes that it doesn't have any other option other than the use of force, if it realizes that its consensus on the island, which has decreased, but is decreasing even further, if it's realizing that its leverage, it doesn't have any more leverage on the Taiwanese government, uh, which is actually, in my opinion, what triggered the invasion of Ukraine. Putin realized that they didn't have any other option at that point. Uh, Ukraine had shifted clearly side. It wasn't anymore a contested environment. It had shifted side. So if China gets to the point, that could trigger an invasion or a blockade. This is sort of coherent with their strategic culture, with what also Sun Tzu used to say, win without fight. I think they've been abiding to this principle for many years. But if that principle doesn't work anymore, at some point, they will try something else. And in terms of the signs, if we're talking about an invasion, we would see movement of troops and stockpiling of ammunition, for example. These are things that intelligence can find out with at least a few months before anything is going to happen. But even if we are talking about a blockade, I think we would see efforts from China to become more self-sufficient. By becoming more self-sufficient from the rest of the world, it takes time. So it's difficult to say when, but that's also why I think, because China won't be self-sufficient anytime soon, I think a big escalation of the situation on the strait, it's a while away, in my opinion. Mark, from an insurance market perspective, do you think it's better to act preemptively or reactively? You know, caution can work both ways. So when do you take your chips off the table? So first of all, I really love the casino metaphor. And really because, you know, it does highlight one point, which is as insurers, we only really deal, taking it one step further, when there is fortuity. And to do our jobs, you know, we need to assess probability and value. And we have to understand risk and we have to put a price on it. And that's one of the things that's really interesting about it. And I think it's fair to say that today, only one man knows when, in terms of the subject we're contemplating today. But Taiwanese exposure is a subject of heightened scrutiny today, right across the market. And so in that sense, I think you could say the wider industry is clearly acting proactively in that sense. My view at the moment is we're, we're very much open to serving clients with Taiwanese exposure, I think it's absolutely something we want to continue doing. And as the saying goes, 
fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So going back to the exercise that was pushed out in London at the beginning of this year, are scenarios and stress tests useful? And, and how else can you begin to prepare for something that might seem hypothetical, but could be very damaging if, if it comes to pass? Absolutely and unequivocally, yes. For me, at least in part, it doesn't really matter what the proximate cause are. It, it makes it easier to hypothesize around a data collection exercise or whatever you want to call it. So yes, definitely value. I remember at the end of 2021, start of 2022, asking all of our underwriters to contemplate what a Russian invasion of Ukraine looked like, what increased hostilities to Taiwan looked like, what Iran's path to nuclear power looked like. So very different things in, in different parts of the world. And when all is said and done, we need to stress test our balance sheet and by definition, our reinsurance programs around different events and the scale or magnitude that they could create, both within normal loss curve expectations. But I think critically, I think at the heart of your question is more about the, the extreme tail risks, which do happen. So. You know, un uncertainty is the big deal, and that, that's what's got to be factored into risk selection and, and what is or isn't covered. And that's one of the reasons why I love my job. It's what we do. There's always some editing involved in podcasting, and I'm sad to say I couldn't include everything in what was a, a lengthy conversation with these two stellar guests. So perhaps we'll have an opportunity to discuss the topic again in 2024. After more than 70 years, I don't think anybody expects this topic to go away, and certainly not now that we're in a new era of geopolitical instability. Which means we'll continue to hear more about moves and counter moves, but hopefully also attempts to cool tensions rather than just stoke them. But for now, that's it for another episode. So please stay tuned, follow, like and subscribe. You've been listening to the Political Risk Podcast, hosted by me, David Benyon. My guests were Mark Wheeler, co-CEO of Mosaic Insurance, and Dr. Zeno Leone from King's College London. Production was by Peter McGill, and my cousin Lawrence Durkin provided the music. <laughs>